So with that, let's start with the uh, the Dharma talk tonight, with the offering tonight. Can you hear me okay back there as I move my head? It's still okay? Yeah. Yes. L- louder? Is that a yes or? That's a good. Okay, great. Awesome. All right. And if my voice starts to wane during the the, the talk, it sometimes does happen. Just give me a thumbs up and I'll realize that you want the volume louder. It's not that you're really excited about what I'm saying. I'll, 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 <laughs> for that, you can do this. But. So with that, um, I wanted to offer some reflections tonight um, that have come up for me because really as, as uh, teaching the Dharma, uh, one can only teach from one's own experience, when, when, what one has experienced, and, and usually the reflections that, that one has and, and they're alive. So I've um, been reflecting on the value of adversity in my life recently. So I'm going to share some uh, reflections on that and, and hope that it's of use, of some value in your own process and in your own thinking. So... So the reflections that I've been having is really that the times of adversity in my life um, have been the times of most growth. Um, Different times. um, I was 16 years old when I um, moved from my home country, Tehran, Iran, after the Islamic Revolution and moved to the U.S. as a teenager. And, And that was a very difficult time for me as a teenager. Um, Very difficult to leave um, home, leave family, leave friends, um, and come to a completely new culture and go to high school, do the last year of high school in the U.S. It was just, wow. Um, And I realized as as a teenager, I was not really equipped, but I grew so much in that year. Um, I'll I'll say more, but um, also one other thing I wanted to say is, there's a chapter in this book that I've been reading, The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt, which is a really nice book. So what he does in this book, uh, the subtitle is Finding Modern Truth in Asian, in Ancient Wisdom. So basically what he's done is that he's taken um, ancient wisdom that is in common between different traditions. And he has... Uh, come up with um, uh, recent research in psychology that supports why these ancient words of wisdom are so appropriate and, and so right. And, and, and the, the modern research in psychology supports these, these proverbs and these teachings, and some of them are Buddhist teachings, and some of them are from different, culture, uh, different religious traditions and some cultural traditions, etc. So... So there is a chapter here on adversity. And as I was reading this, it's called The Uses of Adversity. And as I was reading this chapter, it really helped gel and coalesce the ways in which I thought that um, adversity has been really helpful in my life. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that. So I would really wanted to give this book credit because the first part of the talk, I'll be motivating and talking about that aspect of it. And then the second part of the talk, I bring in more of how in this practice, in Buddhist practice, what are actually the tools in the tool bag that we use to to, um, grow through adversity and grow um, 
um, through a difficult time. So maybe the first part of the talk, perhaps I can say, is um, inspired by this book, and it's a kind of a, uh, an argument for why adversity is good, which might sound like an oxymoron, but you, you know where I'm going. Um, and the second part is, okay, how to use our spiritual practice within Buddhism to actually be in the midst of it and become stronger and, and, and grow through adversity. So that's kind of the agenda for, for the talk tonight. So I also hope we'll have some time for interaction and discussion, and we'll see how that goes. Feedback. Okay. All right. So... So there's what he calls the adversity hypothesis that people need adversity setbacks. And when I say he, I, I'm talking about Jonathan Haidt here. So first I'll talk about this, the psychological perspective. And whenever you, hopefully you're still with me. If you're not with me, just raise your hand and ask a question. You will co-create this talk together. So... Um, the adversity hypothesis is that people need adversity, setbacks, um, to reach their highest level of strength, fulfillment, and personal development, which is a pretty strong statement, right, that you need that. Um, there is both a weak version of the hypothesis that adversity can lead to growth, and there is a strong version of the hypothesis that actually people need adversity in order to really fulfill their full potential as human beings in life. So mind you, we're not talking about adversity and difficulty, which is so severe and so difficult that it causes PTSD and, and so traumatic that the psyche just cannot work with it at all. We're not talking about that level of, of difficulty and adversity, but a level that can be supported um, in life. So adversity may not be what we all wish for. I mean, do we wake up in the morning and say, hey, I, I'm ready for some adversity, bring it on. Is it, do, do we do that? I don't think so, right? We, we, we like ease, we like calm, we like ah, periods of ease in our life, which are also wonderful and great because I think they, they really resource us, that those times of ease uh, that you, we can fill the tank, per se, to, to, to be ready for times of, of growth. So probably decades of research in health psychology has focused on, on stress and its damaging effects. Um, and also there's been focus on resilience and the way that people cope, uh, fend off damage, and bounce back. You've probably heard this term, bounce back, has been pretty... Um, uh, hip these days to, to bounce back to normal functioning. However, what, what he hypothesizes and, and many researchers and I hypothesize in the past 20 years is that actually there are benefits to severe stress and what they call it is post-traumatic growth. That <laughs> So after getting a cancer diagnosis, heart disease, HIV, home fires, uh, plane crashes, earthquakes, the like. That kind of a trauma, um, they call the growth that, that happens after that post-traumatic growth. So, so he outlines there are three benefits, there are three ways that this post-traumatic growth 
actually changes us and, and helps us. One is that when you rise to a challenge um, in your life, you actually reveal the hidden abilities you didn't know you had. And seeing these abilities that you didn't realize you had changes your self-concept about yourself. So you might think that, you know, when you see somebody else going through difficulty, you can say, oh, I could never survive what this person is going through, right? We sometimes think that, right? Oh, I could never survive what this person is going through. Sometimes people say that about us. How are you? How are you? I don't know why you, like, I admire your strength. How are you dealing with this? And many times you say, well, I just, you know, it, I'm going, it's okay. It's, I'm, I'm finding resources I didn't know I had. Um, has anyone been in that situation? Anyone? Show of hands, please. Yeah. Um, similarly, you may have thought in your life, you know, I would die if I lost X, Y, and Z. And sometimes in your life, you end up losing what you value the most. And you don't die. You learn to cope. You, you, your heart becomes more tender. You become wiser. You become a more genuine, more heartful person through losing what you love the most. Hate suggests that there is a second way that post-traumatic growth benefits us, and that is through strengthening relationships. And I like to call that Sangha. That's really a teaching in, in Buddhism that the spiritual life, as, as the Buddha was asked, whether, the spiritual, whether Sangha is half of this spiritual life. And he said, no, Sangha is all of spiritual life. So relationships support. The way hate puts it, Post-traumatic growth opens people's heart to one another, which is another way of saying growing, growing compassion, growing compassion for the person who's going through the difficulty. And if you're the one going through difficulty, opens your heart to everybody else who's going through difficulty, period, and especially people who are going through difficulty just like you are. Um, I've had a chronic illness for more than a decade. Um, and for me, um, so I was bit by a tick over 10 years ago, and it went undiagnosed for 10 years, um, my Lyme disease. So um, was finally diagnosed about three years ago. And, and through all the difficulties and all the pains, the, the, there was a time that I was homebound, that I was bedbound. Um, I just, I couldn't get out of bed. I, I, and um, there, were, there were times that I had no control over my body, over my mind, because of what was going on. So I started to really feel for and identify with people who were who were sick, who were not able, who had 
not just chronic illnesses, but a disability, but a serious disability. Um, Or they were not in control of their minds because of chemical imbalances. Because for a while there was just so much going on in my, in my mind with all the, the Lyme symptoms and inflation, in, inflammation in my mind that I could just see all these thoughts arise and pass away that, wow, I had no control really over what was happening in my mind. It was just so humbling how, how this mind is also a fabrication and is supported by this body so so a lot of humility came through that and a lot of opening my heart to to people who were going through similar situations like me i remember i would um the times i would be lying in bed and, and unable to to move i would be doing compassion practice for myself and for everybody who had an illness in the world in that moment and couldn't get out of bed in that moment. Um, so it was, it was a really re- deep practice. I, I've, I've said many, many times that, that my Lyme disease has been the biggest teacher for me, has been the biggest teacher. Jack has been great. Guy is my mentor. Uh, so is Gil. I mean, they're all fantastic. I've studied with Poxide. But, but that tick that bit me, <laughs> has been the biggest, biggest teacher in compassion, in patience, um, in humility. I don't wish it upon any of you, but if you happen to to have an adversity, I want to remind myself and all of you that it's not a nuisance. Adversity is not just a nuisance to get, get it over with and move on with the process of life. It is life. It is part of our spiritual practice. It is part of what helps us grow and become more human. So with the second point that hate makes about strengthening of relationships, as I was talking about people open their hearts, both people who are in your support community, it allows them to open their hearts, and it also opens your heart, um, both in your, to your circumstance and to everyone who might be going through similar things or anyone going through adversity. And also gives us a feeling of love and gratitude for those who were there for us when we were going through a hard time. And this is something that we can all identify with. Actually, I, I invite you for a moment, bring, bring to mind a time that you were going through a rough time. And think about someone who was there for you, someone who was kind to you. Maybe not even in a huge, big way, but but showed you some kindness when you're going through a rough time. And get in touch with that sense of gratitude that you have for that being, whatever kindness they extended at that time. And feel your how your heart opens in that moment when you when you intentionally tap into 
that sense of gratitude for this being. It is said that the bereaved have a greater appreciation and tolerance for the people in their life, knowing that time is short. And that's another thing that adversity and loss in a felt sense way, not in an intellectual way, brings into our life this appreciation that time is short, that people are precious, and not to get caught in niggling differences, to have more capacity for forgiveness. and for coming to resolution. The third way that hate suggests that post-traumatic, what was it called? Post-traumatic growth. I love that term. Post-traumatic growth helps us is that adversity changes our priorities in life and our philosophies towards the present moment and towards other people. So one example is that of King Ashoka that many of you might already be familiar with, that after he conquered the Maurya Empire in central India at the time of the Buddha, around 272 BCE. Um, it was a quite a bloody victory. Um, and as he was walking in the fields of all the blood and gore and, and beheaded men, he was seized with horror and remorse. And that's when he converted to Buddhism and renounced violence and conquest and decided that from then on he would dedicate his life and his kingdom to justice and a respect for the Dharma. So through that remorse, through that adversity, his perspective, his priorities, his philosophy of life changed through that. And it's not uncommon for people who have had a cancer diagnosis to call it a wake-up call, a reality check, or a turning point to change their careers, to reduce time at work, or to consider and wake up that this is a life, is a gift they were taking for granted before adversity struck. And again, not to celebrate suffering and adversity and prescribe it for everyone, but there, are val- there, there can be value in it if it's in the right amount at the right time. And we'll talk more about that. I actually wanted to read a little paragraph from this book for you. Most of the life goals that people pursue at the level of characteristic adaptations can be sorted 
as psychologist Robert Emmons has found into four categories, work and achievement, relationships and intimacy, religion and spirituality, and generativity, which means leaving a legacy and contributing something to society. Although it is generally good for you to pursue goals, not all goals are equal. People who strive primarily for achievement and wealth are less happy on average than those whose striving focuses on the other three categories. Human beings were shaped by evolutionary processes to pursue success, not happiness. People enthusiastically pursue goals that will help them with prestige in zero-sum competition. Success in these competitions feel good, but give no lasting pleasure, and it raises the bar for future success. When tragedy strikes, however, it knocks you off the treadmill, especially the, the hedonic treadmill, and forces a decision. Hop back hop back on and return to business as usual or try something else. There is a window of time. I like, I appreciate this part. There is a window of time just a few weeks or months after the tragedy during which you are more open to something else. During this time, achievement goals often lose their allure, sometimes coming to seem pointless. If you shift towards other goals, family, spirituality, or helping others, you shift to inconspicuous consumption and the pleasure derived along the way not fully subject to adaptation effects. The pursuit of these goals therefore lead to more happiness but less wealth on average. Many people change their goals in the wake of adversity. They resolve to work less to love and play more. If in those first few months you take action, you do something that changes your life, then those changes might stick. But if you do nothing more than make a resolution, I must never forget my new outlook on life, then you will soon slip back into old habits and pursue old goals. Adversity may be necessary for growth because it forces you to stop speeding along the road of life, allowing you to notice the paths that were branching off all along and to think about where you really want to end up. So it seems like there is There is a window of time. And, and as I read that, I think about the various sudden things that have happened in my life, that there is a window, window of time afterwards, that the perspective completely changes. And success and, and various <coughs> allures in life, they, they, they lose their value. Um, so, so I can also tell you that sitting here as a freshly, newly being minted Dharma teacher. Um, my, my previous life, um, 
I was a, well, I still am sort of a research scientist in computer science in the high-tech world. Um, and I can tell you that being a Dharma teacher has not been a financial decision. <laughs> I've become, what's the term? I like it. Downwardly mobile. <laughs> and yet, it, it is absolutely true. I think Jonathan Haidt is right on, and you can just look into your heart and don't take my word for it, that there are different goals in life that are much more satisfying in, in, in this limited human life that we all share on this planet together. So, there are a few more words I want to say about the, um, about the way within this practice to work with diversity, because I, I really appreciate how Jonathan Haidt motivates us to think about adversity, again, not as a nuisance or like, oh, why me, but really as something to embrace. And this is something that I keep wanting to remind me because adversity is part of life, happens all the time. It's not that we do something wrong and, and adversity comes our way. It's just the fabric of life. It's just, it's random. Things happen. Um, gain and loss, praise and blame is the eight worldly winds. Um, pain and pleasure, it's all part of what we go through. So, I want to now bring in thoughts on working through adversity with Buddhist practice. Um, With the second foundation of mindfulness and the Four Noble Truths. Okay, now we get seriously Buddhist. So, so bear with me for a moment while I motivate what I'm about to say. So I'll give you a little bit of background in the moment. So. So the second foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, the second foundation of mindfulness, has to do with what's called Vedana, or feeling tone, which is when we perceive, it's usually translated as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Or pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But it's such a handful, mouthful, that we just say neutral. Actually, those words, the actual words in Pali, are a little different. And you'll see how this relates to what we've been talking about in a moment. So just just bear with me. So the actual words are sukha, dukkha, adukam, asukha. So sukha relates to kind of sugar, sweet, pleasant, right? You see where it's coming from. That's the pleasant one. Dukkha actually literally means painful, right? Painful, sweet, and adukam, neither dukkha, neither sukha, neither painful nor pleasurable, okay? So, so that experience of painful is a feeling tone, is a, fe- is, is a perception of the mind that's affiliated with, with 
an experience. So for example, this bell, ringing of the bell, there is the sound of the bell, okay? And then it could be perceived as sukha, sweet, pleasant, lovely, or could be pleasant as, or, or could be described as, or experienced as painful, unpleasant, depending on if you say if, if you were sleeping and you're really tired and I kept bang, you know banging this you know it would be painful, or if you were sitting here for two hours and you're waiting to hear the ring of the bell to end the sitting, like oh pleasant, that sounds so pleasant, right? So it's not an an inherent quality of the sound, right? The sound is just a sound. It's really what your mind in that moment associates with that experience. Painful, sweet, pleasant, whatever it is, okay? So, so that's a really important distinction and, and something uh, for us to keep in mind and experience in our own lives. Okay, so keep that in mind. The other part that I want to hypothesize to bring in is, is the um, understanding of the four noble truths. So the first noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha, that there is dukkha. And the second noble truth is that the cause of dukkha is clinging. So, so the logic is that Dukkha, or the suffering, suffering is whatever pain, pain or discomfort that arises when we cling to something. So when we are clinging to something, and we don't want something to happen, or we were really pushing it, we want it to go away, that's when suffering, ari- that's when dukkha arises, right? So if, you know, I'm sitting here, could be neither pleasant nor unpleasant or it could be pleasant but if I really don't want this the sound of the bell that's when it really starts to feel like dukkha right it's that pushing away it's that clinging is wanting things to be different than they actually are so so with that how does that how does that play in how does that how does that give us a recipe with the practice that we are in, that we have embraced? Well, being in dukkha, be, being when there is suffering, when there, when there is adversity, to realize if there is something that we're pushing away or something that we really want and we're clinging to. I'll give you an example from, from my own illness. When there were times that I was lying in bed and not able to, to move or do, answer the emails I had to answer and go out and see friends and all the things that, million things I'd rather be doing than lying in bed in pain. Um, I didn't want that reality. I was pushing that reality away. I didn't want to be, it just, I didn't want to be the sick person. I didn't want the pain. I didn't want, it was just pushing away, pushing away, pushing away, pushing away. It was only until there was this sense of letting go into and embracing the reality of what was, that there was this ease of being in the moment because I couldn't change it. There was nothing I could change. And what did change and shift at that time was a sense of 
ease in the midst of what I couldn't change. It actually reminds me of the um, serenity prayer. Does anyone remember it word for word? Volunteer participation, please. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Well, did everyone hear that? Great. And I'm not going to repeat it in the audio so that people can Google it for themselves. Thank you. So it's really that. It's really that. Things that you cannot change to embrace and be, and, and things that you can change. And also that with the wisdom to know the difference. So... So being, being with, recognizing when the mind is pushing something away or, or wanting things to be different. I actually give you another example. This just happened the other day. So um, I, was, I was in the car. I was a passenger in the car. And, and the person driving, you know, their, their driving has been kind of questionable, but I was so tired and I wasn't feeling well and I really wanted to lie down and take a nap. So I was lying and, and it was a really bumpy ride and it was on the highway. And there was something about the noise of hearing the highway noises and the fatigue of my bo- body and also the, the, the history of the driving that, that there was this sense of fear coming up in my mind, this sense of like, oh, we're about to get into an accident right now. And, and I was observing it. There was a moment that it, my mind wanted to give in to that fear and just sit up and, and you know, be cognizant. But I decided to just observe it, just to be with it, just observe it, close my eyes, and just be in the midst of this fear, of this horror that was coming up and this loud noise. Sometimes I actually try it. Just put your head down and, and hear to all the highway noises coming through. It can be kind of scary if you're really listening to a loud, which I was anyway. Um, so, so then I decided to just stay with, stay with, just observe, just be mindful, really bring in the mindfulness and be with, with what seemed fear, just seeing the mind in fear of oh, something bad is going to happen and just watch the fear. And then my mind relaxed in the middle of that. It's so interesting how that happens. And you can see that for yourself. Don't take my word for it. When you don't run away from an experience and change the situation, but you decide, you know, I'm just going to stay with this and like try it on for size. Oh, fear is like this. Ah. It's like instructions I was sharing with you during the meditation. Ah, fear is like this, horror is like this. What is it like? What's the quality? What does it feel like? And then the mind gets that third-person perspective of just watching it. And my mind got so curious and interested and so relaxed and just kind of interested, like, wow, this is fun, that I was so at ease in the midst of it that I fell asleep. (laughs) So... Interesting, isn't it? I mean, this mind comes up with all the you know changes all the time, but 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 changing, cha- trying to run away from that situation. I could have probably just sat up and be t- all tight and okay, I'm going to look where you're driving, and, and instead just being with that because you know the history of driving is really okay. It's really my mind. It's not driving. It's my mind, right? Let's face it. And how many times it's really our mind? It's not the reality out there. It's what our mind is making from it. So, so being with, 
being with in the midst of, being with and experiencing it instead of running away, instead of clinging, instead of pushing away. So I want to invite you to a reflection now. If you would, as, as you're sitting, if you would close your eyes for a moment and just reflect for a moment at a time when there was diversity, when there was adversity in your life. And how the post-traumatic growth really came about for you. The strengths, abilities you didn't see in yourself. The way in which it opened your heart to compassion. Perhaps the way it strengthened your relationships with others. Perhaps how it changed your priorities and philosophies. Maybe how it helped you develop patience, acceptance, endurance. Or determination. Aditanha, one of the ten paramis, or equanimity, or perhaps you're going through a difficult time right now. Maybe there's an adversity in your life right now. To perhaps, just for a moment, not see it as a nuisance. but as a path towards spiritual growth, as the way your path is unfolding for you. There is one thing that you can recall from past experiences of working through being with, not pushing away, not clinging, that you can bring into the situation that might be alive in your life right now, a nugget of wisdom. What may that be? So now I invite you to open your eyes and in a moment I'll invite whoever would want to. You don't have to. You can just sit with your eyes closed and continue to reflect. And there's a lot of value in sharing, being witnessed and witnessing 
in the Sangha of another person. A part about your path, an unfolding of your path. So if you like, I'd like to ask you to turn to someone, just another person, and we'll just spend just a few minutes just talking about what might have come up for you. You don't have to share the deepest secrets of your heart, but just whatever feels right to share with another human being in this moment. So uh, please, I invite you to look around and find someone to talk to if you like, or if you don't want, you can close your eyes and, and reflect in silence. We'll do this for a few minutes. I'll ring the bell after we're done.
Ça. We'll wrap up in one more minute. your partners please and let's come back to the big root okay I've never seen so many people have so much fun discussing adversity We should do it more often. <laughs> so, what what came up for you? Just some some sangha wisdom. There's a uh, great thank you. Raise your hand, and Rhett will bring them the mic. We have limited time, so bring it on. What came up for you? What did you notice? Thank you. Hold on one sec for the mic. Thank you. I, I like the person I am, having gone through it and how I've gone through it. Um, and this like of me is, is new. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And it's wonderful to, to like oneself. It's just, it's... That's where liking others starts, metta for others starts from metta for oneself, and we appreciate the being this person is. Thank you. Other thoughts? What came up as you were reflecting? Lessons of, di- of adversity? Yes, right here, right in front. I was reflecting on uh, various relationships, uh, romantic and otherwise, in my life, uh, where I've been mistreated, and oftentimes it was a direct result of that person's suffering. Mm. Um, and the lesson that I've learned in reflection is that people who are not suffering oftentimes don't hurt others. Yeah. And so when you're hurt, it's usually because, when you're hurt by someone, it's usually because that person is suffering. And so having an awareness of that has caused yeah. me to be much more compassionate when I'm wronged um, yeah. and allows me to not react with anger and rejection, but react with compassion for that person. Like, how can I help this person? And yeah. how can I, what, what is causing them to behave this way? Yeah. That's been really powerful in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that is so important. One way I've heard that said is hurt people hurt people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and when you, when you really get that, then your heart opens to compassion. Yeah. We have time for one more comment, one more reflection. Last one. Going once. Come on, you guys were talking a lot. There's got to be some reflections in this room. 
Okay, right here. Thank you. Right in front, Rhett. I was thinking about uh, two, two years ago, I fractured my ankle and I couldn't drive. And so I had to take, I lived in San Francisco, I had to take Uber everywhere. And it really affected me emotionally to have to be so dependent mm. on people. And so I asked my girlfriend to give me the name of a good therapist. And so I went to see this therapist who happens to be a Buddhist therapist who lives in Fairfax. And, <laughs> and in the course of working with him, he, and I was going to be moving out of the city, he said, have you ever looked at Fairfax? And I said, why would I want to move to Fairfax? <laughs> and he said, because it's really close to Spirit Rock. <laughs> and I went, okay. And so I came and I fell in love with it and that's why I'm here. Wow. And it was because of that ankle. Wow. <laughs> thank you, ankle. Yeah, thank you. That's a great story to end. Yeah, thank you. So thank you all. I'd like to end with, with a quote from Marcella Proust on wisdom. We, we do not receive wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness which no one else can make for us. Which no, one el- which no one can spare us, for our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. So may we all grow in wisdom and compassion and regard, regard the world with eyes of wisdom and compassion. Thank you for your kind attention.